Good morning, everyone. It's a real honor and a, and a privilege to be here before you this morning, the uh, week before Christmas. At the time I offered to help for this message, I didn't realize it was going to be the week before Christmas. And I wanted to teach when I offered uh, about Christ is Lord. It's something I taught at the men's breakfast. We taught through Hebrews uh, 1 and Philippians 2 as my text. And then when I realized that today was the week before Christmas, I said, well, I have to give a Christmas message. And thanks to John MacArthur, he gave a Christmas message from Colossians 1, which actually is a parallel text to Hebrews 1. So uh, you might want to keep your finger in Hebrews 1. We will refer to it a lot as we go through this message. So I've got to give thanks to John MacArthur, but more importantly, I've got to give thanks to God for providing his word to us. So, you know, it's a kind of an irony in secular America uh, of significant proportions that we celebrate the birth of someone we want to refuse to acknowledge. Sort of a curiosity. We have George Washington's birthday, birthday, Abe Lincoln's birthday, but they have to share it. We have Martin Luther King's birthday. He gets his own day. And to my knowledge, I have never heard of anybody from ACLU suing someone for celebrating their birthdays. It amazes me that in a public setting, on public property, we can't celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. We can't sing his praises or articulate his uniqueness without the threat of a lawsuit or a ban. Now, the truth is, nobody wants to stop the celebration. That's not the idea. Not the commercial world, anyway. They want the money. Not the government. They want the taxes that come from all the sales of goods and travel that happen. And the party party goers, they want the fun. If we could just have the party without Jesus, everybody would be happy. The birthday of Jesus, frankly, has become useful. It has immense pragmatic value to the secular world if we could just keep Jesus out of it. You might get the impression based on that that Jesus is some insignificant person from the past, some well-meaning Christian's fantasies over the years that have become something that has been embellished over the years, and we're just kind of stripping it down now to the way it should be. Is Jesus someone less important than George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Martin Luther King? Is Jesus someone about whom we shouldn't be making so much fuss about? Certainly not too much articulation of the character of his life and what he said and why he came. Is Jesus someone to be pushed into the background? Should we keep the party and get rid of the person whose party it is? Is he insignificant? Should people want to proclaim the Christ and sing praises be silenced? Well, the Bible is supremely the book about Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament records the preparation of his coming. The Gospels present him as God in human flesh, come in the world to save sinners. In Acts, the message of salvation in crisis begins to spread throughout the world. And in the epistles, we have the detailed theology of Christ's teachings, his work and personification of Christ in his body, the church. Finally, Revelation presents Christ on the throne, reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Every part of Scripture testifies about Jesus Christ as Lord. In Luke 24, 27, in the begin, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, was speaking, interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning him. In John 5, 39, Jesus said of the Scriptures, it is, he, it is they that bear witness of me. Philip preached Christ to the Ethiopian using the book of Isaiah. We learn that in Acts 8.35. But of all the Bible's teachings about Jesus Christ, none is more significant than Colossians, 11, uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 19. The dramatic and powerful passage removes any deedless doubt or confusion over Jesus' identity. Paul wants to make sure there's no mistaken identity. Just like Ken taught us the last two weeks before Jesus left, he made sure there's no mistaken identity on who he is. It is a vital to proper understanding for Christians to understand the Christian faith. So I want to read to you, starting in verse 15, listen to what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is, the invisible, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let's stop there. Every one of those statements through verses 15 through 19 are absolutely exclusive statements. They are true of him, Jesus Christ, and no one else. And the sum of them is all at the end of verse 18 where it says that he is to have the first place in everything or be the preeminent one. No one else is the image of the invisible God. No one else can be the firstborn of all creation. No one else can be the creator of things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. No one else sits over the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. No one else is before all things and holds all things together. No one else is ahead of the body, the church, the beginning of the firstborn. No one else has all the fullness dwelling in him to the pleasure of the Father. Those are all absolutely exclusive statements. And what they tell us is that Jesus Christ is utterly unique. There is no one like him. He is beyond everyone else. He is infinitely beyond everyone else. 
And if we are going to slight somebody on his birthday, it better be man and not the God-man. The humble birth of Jesus Christ that we read about in Luke's gospel, the manger, which is a feed trough in a stable, the humble garment that wrapped his little body was never intended to be a quiet facade to hide the reality that God was being born. Although the world has tried to make it that, it is really a demonstration of condensation, servanthood, and humiliation. And frankly, those people have tried to find the accoutrements of Christmas and the simplicity and humility that covers up reality have, hard, have a hard time explaining an event so humble it could become the most widely known event on the face of the earth. If Jesus wasn't so unique, how in the world did we come to divide our calendars by his birth? Seems to me that all the protesting about Jesus, all the trivializing of his birth, is like the confession of which Shakespeare comments when he had one of his characters that say, Methinks you protest too much. The truth is that, as the angel said, this is Jesus who will save his people from their sins. And as the prophet said, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. The truth is, what you have in the birth of Christ is a Savior who is God in human form. God entered our sin-polluted world without being tainted by it. He took our guilt. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was raised for our justification. He ascended to intercede for us, to prepare a place for us, and will return to take us to be with him forever. This is Emmanuel, God with us. To slight the child of Christmas is to blaspheme the God in heaven. He is unique. No one has ever been like him, and no one ever will be. In the book of Revelation, John has this amazing experience in chapter 5 as he's taken by a means of a vision to the very throne room of God in heaven in the presence of God. He sees God sitting on the throne, and in God's hand is a scroll. The scroll represents the title deed, the, the title deed of the universe. And the universe at the present, though, is in the hands of the usurper, Satan, the arch enemy of God and the destroyer of souls. And Satan now is the god of this world, the ruler of this age, but God is seen in the picture of Revelation 5, holding this title deed to the earth and to the universe in his hand and saying, who is worthy to take the title deed and to open its seals and to take back the world and the universe? And as John scans all of heaven and all of earth, no one is found to be worthy, absolutely no one. No great intellect, no great professor from some academia uh, institution, no great military leader, no great monarch, ruler, king, emperor, no great religious leader, no one was found, and John begins to weep. And he is weeping because no one has the authority or the ability to rise and take back the universe from the usurper. And in the midst of his tears, he can discern someone stepping forward from the throne who is both the lamb and the lion. None other than Jesus Christ. And he reaches to the Father and he takes the scroll. 
in all of the universe, he is worthy. In all the universe, he alone has that authority and that ability. There is none like him. And if there was ever a celebration for anyone, there should be a celebration for him. And to exclude him from the celebration is the most profound kind of blasphemy. He is God in human flesh flesh that came to save. But to see the greatness of this person, one needs only to go back to the text which we read. I want you to see a portrait painted by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that gives us a series of points that reveal Jesus Christ in each of these five points that represent a particular relationship. We see Christ in his relationship to God. We see his relationship to the created universe, then to the unseen world, and to the church, and then finally to all other revelations. Let's start with Jesus in his relationship to God. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You need just a little bit of background to understand the context why Paul was writing this to the church of Colossae. They were confronted with typical religious errors then as we are today in our churches. There were false teachers then as there are now. People purveying lies as if they were religious truths. And there was a group of these religious teachers that taught that they had the super knowledge, the superior knowledge. And they thought that Christianity was common, mundane, low-level kind of religion. And they had elevated themselves to a much higher one. They fancied themselves as the spiritually elite, the theologically elite, the intellectual elite. And they twisted scripture to give themselves a superior position. Now, just to give you a brief kind of understanding, it'll help you in this context. They believed that creation out of ev- that they believed in creation out of evil matter. They believed that anything that is physical is evil. Anything that we can touch, smell, or taste. Therefore, matter is evil. All matter is evil. Anything that's physical is evil. They believed that spirit was good. And anything that was invisible, intangible, is good. So God could never take on a body in their teaching. That would be for God good to be mixed with evil. And God who is good would never do that. In fact, God who is good would never have created anything because anything physical is evil. And Jesus also would never take on a physical form because he would, then, he would never associate with evil. So God didn't create, Jesus is not the creator of God. God would not incarnate himself in human form, and neither would Jesus. Paul is writing against this backdrop. And he is simply saying to them, Jesus is the invisible image, is the image of the invisible God. And in verse 16, by him all things were created. Get rid of this ridiculous notions that you have. There is one God, and he created, and that one God came into the world in the form of Jesus, in human flesh. That's the truth that Paul is teaching. In relation to God, then, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the replica, the iconion. He is the reproduction. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, it says this, making the the same point. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of God's glory. That is to say that he is the shining forth of God. 
He is the exact, says the writer in, of Hebrews, imprint of God's nature. He's not only the brightness, but he is the essence, the substance. The term image in the classical Greek is the term for a die or a stamp. He replicates God with his stamp. He is the exact reproduction of God. As John tells us in his account of the birth of Christ, we beheld his glory. And what glory was it? The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of the same attributes that are characteristics of God. Paul, writing in Philippians 2, says, Christ in one point was in the form of God, but emptied himself, being born in the likeness of men. He is the precise copy, reproduction, replica of God. He is the very substance and essence of God. He is the radiance of God's shining glory in human form. That is why Jesus could say in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In fact, he is not just a sketch of God. In verse 9 of chapter 2 in Colossians, he says, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And back in verse 19 of chapter 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we read, Christ, who is the image of God, he is a full manifestation and revelation of God. Paul wants it crystal clear that there is no equivocation to his identity of Jesus Christ. He is God in human flesh. That's not unreasonable if you look at the life of Christ. If you could picture in your own mind, if God came to earth to be with us, what would you picture him to be like? Well, here's my list. I'd expect him to be sinless. Jesus was. He was at all points tempted like us, but yet without sin. Even Pilate, who said at his judge, after all the hullabaloo that had gone on, came to the same conclusion. I find in him what? No fault. The Roman centurion came to the same conclusion, and so did the thief on the cross. If God... Nobody could ever bring an accusation against him. At a trial before Annas, a trial before Caiaphas, a trial before Herod, passed on back to Pilate, nobody could come up with anything. If God were a man, I would expect him to be sinless. And the record of history and the affirmation of the apostles, this is true. Jesus was sinless. If God were a man, I would expect him to speak the most profound and greatest words ever spoken. And when I read the Gospels, that's what I read. It, when you read Jesus' words in the Gospel, they are so profound. And a comment, of his distract, distract, a comment of his detractors was, we never heard anybody speak like this. And every time he preached, they were absolutely astounded. If God were a man, I would expect him to exert profound influence over humanity and personality. He did. The impact of Jesus Christ on humanity is without equal. In fact, if you just look at the disciples who were basically bumbling common characters 
who had a hard time comprehending some of the basic issues of theology and truth, but by the power of Jesus' life, transformed them to 12 men who changed the world. And he's still transforming people like that today. If God, I would expect that if God were, I would expect that if he were God, he would have that kind of influence. Now, if God were a man, I'd also expect him to do miracles. And Jesus did repeatedly, publicly, unarguably, undeniably, even the Jews said he did miracles, but by the power of Satan, not by the power of God. He did them dramatically, prolifically. And if God were a man, I'd expect him to know the future. And Jesus did. He predicted things about himself, things about the nation of Israel, details about the future and the end of the world. If God were a man, uh, if God were a man I'd expect him to show us what God was like. And he did. We saw him in love and kindness and mercy and grace. That was absolutely and utterly beyond anything any human could ever experience. And we saw him at a level of virtue, fairness, wisdom, the likes of which the world had never seen. Any way you look at it, if God were coming into this world as a man, he would come out as Jesus Christ. And that's the case. Jesus Christ is the exact reproduction of the invisible God, and he makes the invisible God visible. If you trivialize the birth of Christ, as I said earlier, that is a monumental form of blasphemy because that is striking a blow against the revelation of the eternal God in Christ. Furthermore, in verse 15, identifies Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. That is not a reference to time. He wasn't the firstborn in creation. Adam was made, and then Eve was formed, and they started having a lot of babies. There were plenty of them before Jesus was born. It doesn't mean that he was the first person ever born in all of creation. What it means is what the Greek says in all of creation, he is the prototokos. That is to say, the ranking one. In ancient time, the firstborn meant the heir. The supreme one, the superior one, the one with the right of inheritance, the one with the rights of privilege and prestige and honor. Jacob was born first, but he was the prototokos. He was the heir. Perhaps you can understand it, and we might want to take uh, an opportunity here to turn to Psalms 89. We're going to look at verse 27. And here, the psalmist is giving us a definition of the firstborn. Psalm eighty nine twenty seven, God says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Firstborn being defined as the highest of the kings, the supreme one. There's our definition of the firstborn. firstborn. Hebrews 1 also speaks of this in verse 2 of his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. That's the issue, and that's why in verse 3 at the end, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sits down on the very throne of God. And Paul is saying in relation to God, he is the exact representation of God and all who have been created. He is the heir. He is the supreme one. 
He is the ranking one. He is the ultimate one. Paul declares then that Jesus is God, the exact replica of God, the supreme being of all who have ever existed. Some people may be confused about whether Jesus claimed this. Certainly the Jewish people of his time were not. They wanted to stone him for blasphemy. In John 10.33, they say, because they, they said, you being a man, make yourself God. Indeed, he was God. Thomas had it right when he reached out in his hand in the sight of Christ and he commented, my Lord and my God. Look at the second relationship in verses 16 and 17. Not only do we we see Jesus in relationship to God, but in relationship to the world of creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then at the end of the verse, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We are dealing not here with a man, not just with a, not a, just a great man. We are dealing with the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Whether it is in heaven or in earth, whatever is visible or invisible, it is all created by him. It is all created for him. He is before all of it, and in him, all of it hangs together. He is the creator, and again, that is exactly what we read in Hebrews 1, 2. Through him, also, he created the world. Or literally, dia, D-I-A, by whom he made the world. The whole universe, the whole cosmos, the whole material universe was made by Jesus Christ. And just to think about it is absolutely mind-boggling. If you could bore a hole into the sun, you could pour 1.2 million Earths inside the sun and still have room for 4.3 million moons. The sun is inconceivably massive. The sun is 93 million miles away. The nearest star is Alpha Centauri. It's five times bigger than the sun. Now, the moon is only 211,000 miles away. And the reason I say it's only 211,000 miles away is because we could walk there. If you could walk 24 miles a day, you'd be there in 27 years. So it's really just a walk. A ray of light travels 186,000 miles per hour, uh, I'm sorry, per second. So it can reach the moon in 1.5 seconds. So if we could get up to that speed... We could reach Mercury in four and a half minutes. We could reach Venus in four minutes and 21 seconds. I'm sorry. In two minutes, we reach Venus. In four minutes and 21 seconds, we hit Mars. And then if we want, we could go a little longer. We go to Jupiter. That's 367 million miles away. That'll take 35 minutes and 11 seconds. We could go on to Saturn. That's an hour and 11 seconds. And then if you want, we could go further to Uranus. 1.6 billion miles away, Neptune, which is 3 billion miles away, and then on to Pluto. And once you've reached Pluto, we haven't even gotten to the doorstep of the universe. Betelgeuse, it's an amazing star, 880 quadrillion miles away from Earth. Are you ready for this? The diameter of Betelgeuse is greater than the Earth's orbit around the sun. That is a big star. Who made all that matter? 
Who made all that stuff? Jesus. And what does the psalmist say in Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We are all without excuse. He made the creation, and he made it good, didn't he? But man stained it with sin, and he will one day come back to recreate it and bring it back to the glory originally intended. Look at verse 16 at the end. All things were created through him and for him. For his own good and his own pleasure and his own purposes, he is before all things. He had to be before all things. He couldn't have created them. That is to say, Jesus is pre-existent. He was alive before the incarnation, and in him all things hold together. He was before the creation because he was the creator. He is the one who holds it all together. He is the cohesion. We don't accept the deist view that he wound up the world and walked away and left us alone. He holds it together. Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the principle of cohesion. He's what keeps everything moving. He keeps everything in orbit. Do you understand that? Do you understand that the bodies of the universe don't stay in orbit just because they stay in their orbits? They stay in their orbits because he keeps them there. And do you understand when you go down into the atom and you look at the electron and you look at the neutron and the proton, they are being held in their places consistently by the power of the word of Christ. He is making them function consistently. It's all by his power. Do you understand that if the world's rotation slowed down, we would alternately freeze and burn? If the moon didn't remain in its exact precise distance from the earth, the ocean tides would inundate, the body, the, inundate all the land twice a day. Who sustains this delicate balance? It's Jesus Christ. He is before all things, and in him all things adhere. All things hold together. And all of that was in the manger, the creator, the sustainer, before all things, laying there in the manger. This child is the beginning of creation, the end of creation, the upholder of creation, and the goal of creation. Let's look thirdly now at the relationship of the unseen world. In the middle of verse 16, all things were created by him, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Those terms are familiar to students of the New Testament because they are indicative of the ranks of angels. You will see those terms a number of times in Paul's writings, several times in his letter to the church of Ephesus. And what it tells us is that he is the creator and the king over all the angels. Thrones, dominions, rulers of authorities are just talk about the strata or the ranks of angels. He is over them all. The highest angelic princes are subject to Jesus Christ, whether they be seraphim, cherubim, Gabriel, Michael, or whether they be the demons or Satan himself, the very angels who said that night, glory to God in the highest, were the servants of the baby in the manger. They had been created by him. Angels, whether elect angels, holy angels, or fallen angels, are all subject to Christ. They would not exist apart from his creative power, and they could not continue to exist apart from his sustaining power. 
In Hebrews, again, chapters 1, verse 7, he says, he makes his angels winds. It's talking about a creative act. And his ministers, a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever when God made the angels by his creative act. When Christ made angels by his creative act, he made them ministers. That's a word for servants. But when God sent his son, he wasn't a servant. He sent, said, the throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the angels worship him because he is sovereign. Verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 6 in Hebrews, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Angels are servants. He is the one to be served. He is the king. He is the sovereign. There's a fourth relationship to point out. Look at verse 18. We have seen Jesus in his relationship to God, to the created universe, to the unseen world of angels, and now Jesus in his relationship to the church. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There are many metaphors used in Scripture to describe the church. It is called a family, a kingdom, a vineyard, a flock, a building, and a bride. But the most profound metaphor, one having no Old Testament equivalent, is that of the body. The church is a body, and Christ is the head of the body. The concept is not used in the sense of a company, but rather looks at the church as a living organism inseparably tied together by the living Christ. He controls every part of it and gives it life and direction. His life, lived out through all the members, provides the unity of the body, as Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. He energizes and coordinates the diversity with the body, a diversity of spiritual gifts and ministries, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. He also directs the body's dependency on each other as the individual members serve and support each other, 1 Corinthians 12, 15. Christ is not an angel who serves the church. He is the head of his church. And that simply illustrates the fact that Christ is the source of all truth, all knowledge, all wisdom, all growth, and all guidance in his church. He is the head of the church. Secondly, he says he is the beginning He is the beginning of the church. He is the source of the church. Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. This is the idea here. The church is the creation of Christ. He is the source of its existence. And truthfully, its most prominent member by virtue of his resurrection, which we'll get to in a minute. He is the RK. He is the pioneer. He is the forerunner. He is the leader. He is the source of the church. Not just its head, but its creator and source. And then following in verse 18, he is also the firstborn from the dead. There's that word again, prototokos. It's not that he's the first person ever resurrected. There were people resurrected in the Old Testament. Jesus resurrected people from the dead. We're not talking about first in time, but all who have ever been raised or ever will be raised, he is the prototokos, the supreme one. Here, Paul zeroes in on the resurrection. He was born, but he was raised from the dead. 
the first fruits of them that slept. His resurrection is the guarantee of the ultimate resurrection into eternal life for all men. He's not a dead hero. He is a resurrected God-man. And all who are and of all who have ever come from the dead, he is the supreme one, the superior one. You can't dismiss Jesus as some dead historical figure. He is alive. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the source, the imitator of the body, the church. And he has given birth from the death, from death to the whole church by his own resurrection. As a result of these things, as a result of being the very reproduction and the replica of the invisible God, the most ranking individual of all who's created, of all those created, as a result of being the creator himself who made everything in the universe visible and invisible, as a result of being the sovereign over the whole spiritual world, as a result of being sovereign in leader and authority and source and life in the church, at the end of verse 18, he says of himself, has come to have first place in everything. He is absolutely preeminent. And it stands to reason, doesn't it, that one who is first in rank in the universe, who is the point of reference, who is the agent, goal, forerunner, sustainer, governor of the sphere of creation, one who is the head of the church, being beginning and first in rank of those resurrected, would be the preeminent one. How inconceivable is it then to have a holiday in which we celebrate and try at the same time to ignore the one we reason for the reason we celebrate? And when you are ignoring someone, it's not just some historical personality, but rather the living God. And then, just to make sure nothing gets left out, and after saying all that in verse 19, Paul adds about Jesus and his relationship to all other revelations. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the powers of deity, all the attributes of deity, Verse 3 of chapter 2 says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 9, all the fullness of deity, everything is in him. And that is to say, if somebody comes along after this and says, I'm God, don't believe it. He needs no supplement. He has no rivals. There is no more revelations. It's in him and him alone that God has put all the fullness of his own deity because it pleased him to do that. Now, the closing question is why? And the answer comes in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross... In you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Why did Christ come into the world? To save sinners. To go to a cross. To shed his blood through death. Pay the price for sin in order that he might present us to God, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He came to gather the redeemed humanity to take back to God. He came into the world to save sinners. That why he was, that's why he was called Jesus. He came to bring reconciliation between sinners and a holy God. 
He came to remove the curse of the universe and to reconcile the universe to its original intended created purpose. He came that he might gather men and women like you and me and all the others throughout human history that God has set his hand upon to gather them together and present them to God holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He came to save us from our sins and to bring us to God, to reconcile the lost. The word reconcile is one of the most significant and descriptive terms in all of Scripture. It's one of the five key words used in the New Testament to describe the richness of salvation, along with justification, redemption, forgiveness, and adoption. In justification... The sinner stands before God guilty and condemned, but is declared righteous, Romans 8.33. In redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave, but is granted his freedom, in Romans 6.18. In forgiveness, the sinner stands before God as a debtor, but the debt is paid in forgotten, Ephesians 1.7. In reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy, but becomes his friend, 2 Corinthians 5.18. And in adoption, the sinner stands before God as a stranger, but is made a son, Ephesians 1.5. A complete understanding, as you know, to go through all of those would take many sermons. But here in Colossians 1.20-22, through 22, Paul gives us a concise look at reconciliation. He took our flesh in him that we might become holy as he is holy. It's a tremendous truth, as Joab, remember, in the Old Testament, pleaded with Absalom, the rebellious, wayward son, and brought him to David as David kissed him. So Jesus Christ brings us to God to get the kiss of God so that we might be reconciled. That is the meaning of Christmas, nothing less and certainly nothing more. It's a sad thing in our culture that Christmas, on the one hand, is trivialized, and on the other hand, it is assaulted in an effort to remove the only thing about it that's important, eternally important. And I think in closing, it behooves us at this time and to take the opportunity to make sure that people do understand that what Christmas is really about. I'm not defending December 25th as if it were the day Jesus were born. It probably wasn't. I'm not defending all the stuff that goes on around Christmas, but I am saying if the world's going to give us an opportunity to focus on his birth of Jesus Christ, let's take advantage of it. Let's take advantage of it in order to worship and to praise him because that's right in order to speak of him to those who much so need to hear. Foolish, foolish people who want to eliminate Jesus Christ. Keep the party, just get rid of the reason, in so doing, and end their effort to gain the whole world, but to lose their soul as a result. We have a tremendous responsibility to them, not to have compassion for the loss, Let's bow together in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we can't even come close to giving you the thanks and the praise you deserve for all that you have done for us, especially sending Jesus on Christmas morning. 
Dear Jesus, we can't even come close to giving you the thanks and the praise you deserve for being obedient to the Father to humble yourself and to step down from your throne, emptying yourself of the prerogative of your deity to come down to us as a baby in the manger and to go through life and at all points be tempted like us but without sin so you could be the perfect sacrifice to pay the price for our sins once and for all. Dear Holy Spirit, we, can, we can't even come close to giving you the thanks and the praise you deserve for coming to us as our comforter for all that believe. And in your coming as a comforter, we know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and sent you, keeping his promise and giving us assurance that the Father accepted Jesus Christ's sacrifice, saving us from, your, from our sins. But we can give you all the glory and proclaim it from the rooftops this Christmas season and for more, forevermore. To you be all the glory. In Paul's closing words to the Corinthians, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jude's last words, and to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you, Dave. Praise the Lord. I just have a, uh, a quick announcement um, for Al's funeral and viewing. Uh, the viewing will be on Tuesday, December 20th from 5 to 8 p.m. at Crippen and Flynn.